I hope you've been having a good summer. Have you been having a good summer? Has it been okay? Uh, I, ho I hope uh, that some of you have had the chance to, to, to vacation somewhere. Anybody go on a road trip? Anybody see family far away? Anyone in go tenting? Let's see the tenters in our midst. Oh, we got uh, a few tenters. Wow, not very many tenters, really. For, we're very bad representative of British Columbia. Um, I don't know about you, one of the things I like to do on vacation that uh, I just kind of amplify more of, I do more of uh, when I'm vacationing is read books. Love, I love a good novel. Uh, how many love to read? Uh, how, how many read more when they're on vacation? I, I, I've seen studies that say that more and more people only read books when they're on vacation. Anyone true of that? Yeah? Probably a few of you. Um, I've read some novels that were so suspenseful that I was tempted to skip through and, and jump right to the last chapter, you know, and, and find out what happened. Anyone ever done that? You're so bad. That's like sacred. Jump. Oh, I can't believe you did. That's, that's awful. Well, this summer we've been looking at the, this, this great book of Scripture, the, the book of Psalms. And Psalms is a collection of prayers and songs. And, and so it's not really a story per se where you would jump to the end of the story to find out what happened. Um, so you might, but, but that said, since this is one of our, our last Sundays on this theme, we're going to look at one of the last Psalms, Psalm 145. And when you look not only at Psalm 145, but the last six Psalms of the Psalter, Psalm 145 to 150, we find out that the significant last word of the book of Psalms is praise. The, the word praise is derived from the Latin word which means to prize, to prize something. When we, when we praise, we express that, that someone or something has great value or great worth. The last five Psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, are all related in that they they all begin and end with the same word. They begin and end with the word hallelujah, which means God be praised. Or in our day, we say praise the Lord, kind of the same kind of thing. I like how uh, Jim uh, Bonewild described these last psalms. He says, the last six psalms are like the grand finale to a July 4th fireworks show. Psalm 145 starts it all off with a few loud booms and an explosion of colors. Five more psalms follow thunderously, exploding forth in bright, colorful, loud, and raucous praise to God. And so we're going to look this morning at Psalm 145, and we're going to say, what is this word praise? What ought it to mean to us? Uh, if you're able this morning, while you can stay seated, the rest of us who are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. 
the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. All your works praise you, O Lord. (laughs) They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all His promises and faithful in all He does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And the Lord is righteous in all His ways and faithful in all He does. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. May God bless the reading of His Word. Have a seat. Uh, sometimes this, uh, this psalm has been called an alphabet of praise. In, in, in English, we don't see this, but in Hebrew, this is an acrostic. Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters. Each uh, sentence of this psalm uh, begins with one of the, the next letter of the alphabet. Uh, for those of you who are real students here, you'll see that it's, there's actually only 21 verses. They actually misnumbered uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, verse 13 should have really been split in two. You'd see that if you were looking at the Hebrew. But this psalm is kind of like David's A to Z of praise. And and it's not unique to have David uh, write an acrostic. He actually wrote a number of acrostics in in the psalms that he wrote. But this one's unique because of its single-minded focus. Every sentence is purely a sentence of praise. You know, there's no lament. There's no complaints, there's no questions, there's, there's no requests, there's no God, would you slay my enemies? There's no God, help, I'm in trouble. It's all praise. Now in the psalm, it's all praise, but uh, if we're honest, in our lives, it's not all praise all the time. Um, doesn't that sound like a radio, you know, 106.5, is it all praise? Should be their motto. All praise all the time. It's not that way in our lives. Uh, and, and it's a number of things. It can be the irritants that come our way. I think of, you know, when someone, you're driving down the street and someone cuts you off and then they blame you for it with some gesture of some kind. Or you just, you know, you're, you're just on your way out the door to the office and, and, and your coffee spills all down your shirt. Anyone, you know, had those kind of small mishaps in your lives? I think of the kind of thing that happened to our family a couple weeks ago. One of our sons was playing in the ocean, and uh, kind of a, I'd like to think of it as a rogue wave came in and tore the glasses right off his face and washed them right out to sea. So now we have this squinty-eyed son, can't see, and we're forking over money for prescription glasses for our boy. That's small. I mean, that's nothing compared to the, the larger kind of calamities that come our way. Wally being a, 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 an, an example of that for sure. There'll be times in our life when, when our hearts really don't resonate with these words of praise that we find in these last psalms, and Psalm 145 specifically. In those times, 
sometimes praise for us will be a sacrifice. There's a, that phrase in Scripture called a sacrifice of praise, that in spite of what's going wrong, I, I can still praise God because God is still God, you know? where we're able to gain the perspective as we praise that these indeed are light and momentary troubles, even though they seem very dramatic in the moment. But also in those times, we can take hope that, that this psalm isn't the only one that we can turn to. We need the entire book of Psalms to help us honestly express who we are before God with all our fears and doubts and our grief and, and lament and our anger and our hurts, along with our faith and our hope and our joy. But I think these psalms point us to the truth that praise is the target. If you want to think about what your life is meant to be aimed at, it's aimed at giving God praise, giving God glory. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book, Answering Prayer, he uh, writes about the psalms as prayers, and he explains this. He says, all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. And any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. In, in other words, praise is kind of the goal that's meant to shape our journey here on planet Earth. Um, I love Pixar films. One of my favorites is the film Wally, not to be confused with Wally, but Wally. Um, and, and it's a film about this little robot who's been left on planet Earth to clean up the garbage. And uh, I, I love his little personality. He doesn't say any words throughout the whole, whole movie. But uh, let's watch a quick uh, scene of him at work. You guys want to watch the whole movie, don't you? Wally finds all these kind of things, and, and uh, don't you just love the moment when he finds the, the ring box with the diamond, and he just unceremoniously has a glance at the diamond, and just chucks it over his shoulder, and he keeps the ring box. You know, he holds on to that. It's, that's the keeper thing that he finds. And, and I, I thought, as I saw that clip, I, saw, I thought, isn't that a lot like our lives sometimes? Where we get caught up with a ring box. We, we kind of, sometimes I, so, I think, are so content with kind of our everyday eat, drink, and be merry, go to work, do our, do our life, live for the weekend, all those kind of things. 
and, and, and that's not really what we're made for. We get distracted by ring boxes and we chuck out the ring. I think the Westminster Catechism gets at the diamond when it asks this profound, famous question. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? And, and the, the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so glorifying God, learning to praise God and, and enjoy Him ought to be kind of a, a guiding principle that, that orientates our whole lives. As you 2 sings in, in one of my, my very favorite songs, it's called Magnificent. And, and it's their, their name for God. They call Him Magnificent. And Bono sings with just such passion, I was born, I was born to sing for you. I was born to lift you up. And he's at something there because we're all born for that. We were made for praise. You might say uh, we praise God not for God's sake, but for our sake because it's, it's as we praise God, as we notice and celebrate His character, ironically, we actually connect with ourselves in a, in a more wholesome way. Uh, A.W. Tozer put it this way. He says, God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful that He can, without anything other than Himself, meet and overflow the deepest demands of our total nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. And so in this psalm, right in the first two verses, we're shown David's serious commitment to praise. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. Look first at how David addresses God. He says, my God, the King. The, the kingship of God is, is one of the themes of this psalm. We, we hear the word king or, or kingship, kingdom, used five times in this passage. Verse 10 reads, All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. Verse 11, they, they tell of the glory of your kingdom. Verse 12, that all people may know of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, your rule endures through all generations. A couple weeks ago, we uh, looked at another great psalm, Psalm 23. Do you remember the opening lines to that psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and we looked at how, uh, you know, for, for David, shepherding was something he was able to understand God through because David had been a shepherd. He grew up as a shepherd boy. Uh, and here again, David's relating to God through something else that David knew really well. David would be king for more than two-thirds of his life. He, he reigned as king for 40 years. <laughs> David knew what it was like to be a king. He knew what it was like to have a kingdom. He knew what it was like to have power and to rule and to, to say, make it so, and it was, it was done. And so I think his whole role of kingship helped him understand God as king, God as the kingdom of God, the kingly nature of God, the dominion of God, through his own experience of being king. And, and David came to understand something else that I think is really important. That while he was a king, he wasn't the king. <laughs> he was a king to some, but David wasn't a king to all. He was not the king of kings. He knew he served at the pleasure of a greater king. If you back up uh, prior to the David story, 
you, you know, Saul was the king before David, and, and this was not the case for Saul. Saul lost his way. In fact, I'd say that Saul's kingship, his, his rule, his, his power, became the lens not with which he understood God, but the lens with which he understood himself. It became his identity. His very kingship had become his king. He, it, it ruled him, and as we know from Saul's story, it eventually ruined him. Being king had become his idol. The one thing about idols is they never serve us very well. They've never served anyone very well. Here, here's the thing, and anything can become an idol to us. Really good things can become an idol to us. Our families, our, our jobs, our, our money, our, our homes, our reputation, our status, all those things can become an idol to us. Uh, a king to us, you might say. What happens when we do that? Uh, Timothy Keller nails this, I think, and he, and he talks a lot about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, anything that we love or serve more than God becomes an idol that saps our strength. He says, for idols are never satisfied. That's why praise and worship are so important. It has a way of, of reordering our loves. That, that's why, why praise, as, as Wally discovered, as anyone can discover, praise can be such a, a source of joy for us. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. As we take joy in God, we discover such a resource of power from Him, from above. There's a wonderful, beautiful, restorative power to praising the one true God above all else because He is the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords and we were born to worship Him. I wonder when it comes to praising whether some of us feel like we're just a bit personality challenged by this whole idea of praising. Um, often intense passion and zeal is associated with praise. And, and some of you just weren't wired that way. And some of you, you because of your personalities, you, you chose careers like computer programming or, or, or engineering or, or those kind of things. And, and so you go, I don't relate to this exuberant expressions of praise, the life of David. I mean, David seems like he's all heart, all passion. I know there's passionate, exuberant computer programmers, by the way. I don't want to say that engineers don't have, you know, joyful moments. Just sometimes they're, sometimes they're geeky joyful moments. That's what I want to say. I just want to say they're geeky joyful moments. Or not. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm just talking. I'm just saying what comes into my head, which is not always wise. These, uh, these first two verses remind us that praise is not entirely about emotion. In, in fact, in Hebrew thinking, the heart was connected to your will. Your, your emotions were thought to be connected to your stomach. Now I know why I'm such an emotional eater, right? So when Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, loving him with your heart doesn't mean that you have to have this extroverted, exuberant personality. It means praising God as an act of your will. David says, I will exalt you. I will praise you. <clears throat> He's dedicating himself to live with God's greatness in mind. It's, it's a decision to praise. By the way, this is just how relationships work, whether it be with a friend or, or with God or with your spouse. Um, 
imagine for a moment if Angel and I were to judge the quality of our marriage today by our capacity to be as enthusiastic as we were in our first days of, of dating. Can you imagine? Think back to that hairy, good-looking guy who had energy and enthusiasm and still had a romantic bone in his body. Um, I, I remember I went away for a month and I wrote, before I went, I, I went away to, to Cuba. I couldn't send anything from Cuba and so I wrote a card every, for every day that I was gonna be away. 30 cards I wrote and I asked my dad to go to the mailbox and put one in the mail every single day. That, this is when we were engaged to be married. I think of how in those days, she laughed at every single one of my jokes and never rolled her eyes. That has changed. There's some serious eye rolling going on in my household, I just want to say. You stop that. That's not good to eye roll anybody. Half-hour kisses. Anyone remember what a half-hour kiss was like? We don't kiss for half an hour ever anymore. I'm lucky if I get a little peck on the cheek. Just saying. It sounds like a complaint right now, and maybe it is. You know, it's really funny. <laughs> really funny, a couple weeks ago, you know, one of these hot, hot summer days, we're sitting on the couch, and, and we're holding hands, and I, 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 I'm hugging Angel, or we're hugging each other, and then finally she just kind of like cast me off, like just like this, and she's, she says, I'm too hot. <laughs> you never would have done that when we were dating, even a heat wave. <laughs> so you might be tempted to sing, we've lost that loving feeling. <laughs> but as a relationship changes, it does not mean that you've necessarily lost something. It, it could mean that. But to, to those early days, uh, you know, <laughs> those early emotions, you can add actually depth and, and trust and, and, and fullness to that relationship, which makes those early days look kind of shallow. Feelings come and go. You know, more emotional and exuberant personalities are often at the mercy of their emotions. It's key that we learn that praising God is actually an act of our will, a decision that we make. And in these first verses, David tells us of his bedrock commitment to praising his God. Every day he says, I will praise you. And, and here's the thing. As we commit our lives, our, our, our will to something, our feelings actually kind of follow. That's just the way we work. You just go through the motions. If, if you're not feeling, by the way, if you're married, just a little bit of married, married marriage advice here. If you're not feeling in love with your spouse right now, that's not fatal by any means. That's maybe normal for many of us. Go through the actions of love. Behave love in loving ways towards your spouse, uh, even if you're not feeling it. it. It's a sacrifice of love, but here's the thing. Uh, you do that long enough and you will feel love. Many, many couples have had bad marriages restored because they began going through the motions and found that the motions brought the feelings. So that's a little aside. In, in verses five to seven, David describes what praise might look like. He says, they will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. 
there's kind of a progressive nature to these three verses. You see this in, in, in these three verses, three pairs of two verbs. Verse six, speak and meditate. Verse seven, tell and proclaim. Verse eight, celebrate and joyfully sing. First, speak and meditate. Those are kind of quieter, aren't they? Um, meditate involves your mind. It, it involves reflecting, thinking, pondering. Uh, and it begins internally. And, and then we have telling and proclaiming. Here's the thing. What you think about, what you spend most of your life thinking about, is going to bubble out. It's going to be something that you then proclaim and tell to others. And we'll find ourselves, as what we come to believe in our hearts, those convictions, we will begin to express those. And then we have celebrate and joyfully sing, sing a, a much more outward expression. And, and, and I almost see this as a model of praise for our lives, speaking and meditating, uh, cultivating a, a thoughtful relationship with God through every day, through, through connecting with God Throughout our days, scripture, worship, prayer. And if you're spending time through your days thinking about God, then you're going to begin telling people about God. You'll tell your friends and you'll tell your family. You'll tell yourself. You'll tell people who are far from God just how good that God, your God is. And if that's going on, when we gather together to, to worship, when we gather together to joyfully sing, it's just going to erupt from within us. It's a natural progression. If the only time that you look kind of thankfully to God is, is Sunday morning, then, then you're going to find it kind of difficult to praise. You're going to feel like a bit of an alien and a foreigner in our service. It, it happens as praise becomes part of our everyday life. Now, as we look at the rest of this psalm, I, I don't think David would want us to mistake this as a how-to for praise, but more of a who-to passage. And David leads us through some of the reasons that God deserves our praise. It's kind of summarized in a mealtime prayer. Some of you may have learned this growing up. It was one that I learned. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That's, that's kind of the theme of this psalm. God is great. God is good. First of all, we pray, praise God for his greatness. Verse 3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. No one can figure God out. Not even J.I. Packer or Timothy Keller or Karl Barth or the greatest theologians ever. You know, the definition of theology is the study of God. And there's probably no greater topic to study than God. But it doesn't matter how smart you are or how long you study, you'll never get to the bottom of God. In fact, I would say if you begin to have God figured out and, and organized in neat package, you're no longer dealing with God. You've moved off God. God is great. God is greater. He's beyond figuring out God's greatness no one can fathom. C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series, young, young Lucy meets a majestic lion named Aslan. We know Aslan as, as this Jesus figure in, in these stories. In the land of Narnia, she shows up, she meets Aslan, and making a return visit a year later, Lucy finally meets up with Aslan. Let me read an excerpt from Prince Caspian. A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes, with dark trees dancing all around it, and then 
No joy, for he was there. The huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying beneath his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Aslan says, each year you grow, you'll find me bigger. That's, that's our journey with God. As, as we come to know God, as we pursue him and come to know about him, we find out how much bigger he is, how much higher his thoughts, deeper his ways, how much richer his love is, how, how, how great he is. And the, and the greatness of God gets really fleshed out in this passage in, in kind of practical ways, because greatness is something that, that's hard to kind of get our minds around. What is greatness? Well, David says in, in verse 14, the Lord takes good care of all those who fall. He lifts up all those who feel helpless. God is big enough, in other words, to pick you up when you fall, to restore you when you fail, when calamity strikes, when you're, you're feeling inadequate. God is big enough for that. Verse 16 says, God says, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. I love that. Every living thing. God is big enough to provide, not just for you, but for all of his creation. I like how uh, scholar Derek Kidner describes this provision. He says, this complex and exuberant provision reflects the creator's generous joy in his world. God not only provides, he delights in providing for us and providing for you. Verse 18, verse 19, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. It tells us that God answers those who pray. And, and this is the paradox. God is great, but he's also near. And, and can I tell you folks, more than any answer to prayer that you need, you need a God that is near. You need a, a God that, that is going to step into your situation and be there with you. And then verse 20, that the Lord watches over all who love him. God is big enough to protect you. Uh, he's, he's like a protective parent at a playground. You know, watching the kids and making sure no st strangers get near. God is great, and as, as we reflect on his character and as we journey with him, he becomes bigger. But we also praise God because he's good. Verse 7 to 9 says, They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. 
and he has compassion on all he has made. Verse 8 is one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture. It's found in Exodus where, where Moses prays this kind of audacious prayer to God, kind of like, God, show me yourself. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. And God says his response to, to Moses' audacious prayer is, he says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And then he does. He passes in front of Moses and he proclaims his name, Lord, Lord, the, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God, when someone asked him to show, show him what he was like, God said, I want to show you my goodness. I'm that good. He's that good. And it was on that same mountain with Moses that God revealed a new name. We sang it this morning. Yahweh. Yahweh is a simple word that means covenant-keeping God. I am that I am. I will do what I, I, I do. It's like he's saying God is the promise keeper. And what's the promise? The promise is that God would treat us with love and compassion and grace. He would be slow to anger. And he'd be abounding in love and faithfulness. He's good to all he has made. I guess I wonder, as we just kind of wrap up this morning, is what more, what, what vision of God, what, what more could we ask of, of God or dream of God? I mean, if, if we were to come up with a wish list, wouldn't, it, wouldn't we want these kind of things? A good God, the kind of God who, who loves his enemies? That, that, that when we call out to him, he's available and near? Who's, who's eternally patient with us? when we're stubborn and wrong and when we fail and when we fall, who takes on flesh and dwells among us and then shows us how far he'll go to prove his love for the world. There's just no one like our God. God is great. God is good. Let's, let's seek to order our lives around praising him. You know, in, in uh, preparing for this message this week, I, I came across a, a definition of praise I like. It's from J.I. Packer or just a testimony, really, more than anything. He says, I've experienced God's presence most powerfully in worship, often during the singing. I suppose because when we sing to him, we're looking hard in his direction. I like that. Looking hard in his direction. You know, Helen Keller was once asked why she went to church because she couldn't see and she couldn't hear. You know what she said? I go to church to show whose side I'm on. Isn't that good? I go to church to show whose side I'm on. And we gather Sunday by Sunday to show the world, to remind each other, to tell ourselves that there is a King of kings and a Lord of lords that deserves all glory and honor, and we're, we're meant to celebrate Him with all our being. And, and, and folks... We won't be happy unless we do. Because the last word of our lives is meant to be praise. And so with that, let's praise. Worship team, come on up. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray.